Hello, everyone. Welcome to a podcast we like to call Tissue Engineering Career Conversations. As the name implies, we are here to talk with some of the leaders in the world of tissue engineering to figure out what they did to get where they are. This includes people from all different aspects of the field, from academic PIs and CEOs to editors and consultants and everything in between. We know how overwhelming and confusing the postgraduate journey is, and we're hoping to bring you along as we try and navigate it with some help from our friends in the field. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Career Conversations. Uh, my name is Naveed Tavakul. I'm here with Dr. Guillermo Amir, professor at Northwestern University. Dr. Amir is the Daniel Hale Williams Professor of Biomedical Engineering and Surgery in the Biomedical Engineering Department at the McCormick School of Engineering and Department of Surgery at Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern. He is the founding director of the Center for Advanced Regenerative Engineering. Dr. Amir received his musculoskeletal disease. She joined the journal after completing her postdoctoral work at the Vascular Medicine Institute at at the University of Pittsburgh. She received her PhD in biomedicine, molecular and cellular biology, and pathobiology with a concentration in cardiovascular biology from the Medical University of South Carolina, and her bachelor's in bioengineering from the University of Pittsburgh. Caitlin's research experience includes work with decellularized scaffolds, vascular tissue engineering, regenerative therapy, for skeletal muscle injury and treatments for pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary fibrosis. Welcome, Dr. Chaika. reviewed publications, conference and conference abstracts, book chapters, and over 60 patents issued and pending in nine countries. Several of his patents have been licensed to companies to develop medical products, and Dr. Amir is also co-founder and scientific advisor of several medical device companies as well. Dr. Amir is a member of the National Academy of Medicine, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the American Institute of Medical and Biological Engineering, fellow of the Biomedical Engineering Society, and a fellow of the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. With that, I want to welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Amir. So I, I, yeah. I I wanted to ask what, you know, first attracted you to a career in STEM science, to got you, what got you really started in this area? Well, I, I always uh, thought I had an inclination towards technology, uh, typically in engineering. Uh, I did have some interest in, in medicine, uh, although I sort of kind of knew in the back of my head I did not want to become a practicing physician or medical doctor. So uh, I, I pursued the technology avenue. But then, you know, taking into account that you could also apply engineering principles to medical problems. When you, I guess, when you first started and you decided that you wanted to, you know, pursue these interests, did you ever consider, uh, I mean, what brought you to a PhD degree to go into, you know, getting your PhD and then eventually um, also going into an academic career? Yeah, so I, I did uh, work for companies uh, through my undergraduate years and, and you know, that that experience was very useful to you know identify you know, aspects of of industry that I liked and uh, others that I did not like so much and you know I, I did very well as an undergraduate in terms of academics so I decided why waste my GPA and, and you know let's consider uh, advanced uh, education or advanced degree in in, in in chemical engineering so that was part of the motivation for that so I did I did you know have some experience. Uh, an industry that that sort of said, you know, I want to do a little bit more. And like I said, a lot 
a lot of, at least at the time, I thought I wanted to do something that would be applicable to help people with medical problems. Because of those experiences in in undergrad, either working in industry or working at companies like that, did you know in graduate school that you wanted to, you know, pursue, I don't know, translational research in that area? Or what really, I guess, in your career now, you've been a co-founder of many companies. Was there something in graduate school that kind of helped push that along or get you, you know, continuously interested in that translation? Well, I've always been a very applied type of person in general, very results oriented. Mm -hmm. So uh, hard for me to stay too long in one particular area, one particular problem. So I would not be a good basic researcher probably, but I, I, and the lab I, I attended was, you know, very, very diverse in terms of research projects and goals, objectives, you know, uh, the people were super diverse. I think there were people from many different countries as well. So I had a lot of different perspectives. And of course, you know, you know, people around you, you know, different faculty that were also very important in, in you know, mentoring and, and, and that guidance towards, you know, the, making sure that what you do is, is is important, right? So a lot of that was is probably what I think shaped my interest in, in applied research. But in terms of translational research, it was, again, that idea that I could apply technology to help uh, you know, solve medical problems. So that that by nature is a is a you know translational quest. Yeah, I mean those medical problems. Do they? I feel like you've have done a lot of work with collaborations with you know clinicians. And so, how do you see or how do you build your research program in a way that enables collaborations with clinicians? Or also, do they come to you and you know come with a problem and then? Um, on, oh, on the engineering we, side, you find a, a quick solution to it. No, when you're starting out, nobody comes to you for anything. Yeah, uh, call people. You pick up the phone and you make phone calls. Back then, there was no social media. There was bare yeah. email. So you know, you basically you know you reach out. Uh, you say you know here's what I'm trying to do at this institution, and I'm trying to build a group that will address these kinds of problems. And of course, if you're interested in you know, for example, blood vessels, you don't call uh, an endocrinologist, right? So mm -hmm. you know. You Talk to the vascular surgery or cardiac surgery folks and see if you can find somebody who has similar interests as yours. So it's no different from anything else in life, right? If you're going to go to the gym and you're interested in basketball, you pick up pick up ball, play pick up ball with people who have that common, you know, that common uh, a sense of uh, of enthusiasm and, and reward when they play that sport, right? So you don't you don't go to to the gym if you want to do basketball and not playing you know with, with baseball folks or, or tennis right so i think it's very similar in academia research right you you reach out and you you the playground is your institution and of course other schools and and then you're trying to the playground in particular it's probably closer more than more like institution when you start out right you don't you don't have that that um that that uh, acclaim or that fame to to reach out to other people necessarily like well who are you but uh, so when you're starting out you know you 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 have to be very proactive and 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 interact with the people who see these problems every day or you know two times a week or what have you. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, do you do you think where you know you started at Northwestern and then started the Center for um, Advanced Regenerative Engineering? Do you think? You know, putting the center together, this was really something that could help bridge collaborations or also enable new investigators starting out. Like if they, you know, came into your center, were able to, you know, be afforded some of those opportunities just with setting up a program like that. Yes, uh, that is correct. So the center, one of the goals in the, of the center is to 
make it a lot easier for you to make those connections. When I when I arrived, there's nothing, right? Mm-hmm. There's literally nothing. So uh, the center is a way, it's a nexus to bring people together from different uh, backgrounds, different areas that might be looking for, you know, research or, or technologies or solutions that have to do with regenerative medicine or tissue engineering, mostly regenerative engineering. Uh, uh, but uh, there's also the center, another major goal for it is to educate, right? You know, people like you, you know, grad students, also postdocs, uh, young faculty, the next generation of people who hopefully will continue to do this kind of work, educate them on, on how convergence research is done and how difficult it is. It's not just your traditional interdisciplinary research, right? This is, it goes beyond that. So uh, having the ability to facilitate introductions and, and, and new projects, but also training the next generation of uh, graduate students and postdocs is one of the, and also introducing industry to us and us to industry are, are major goals of the center. Would you say that when you're, you know, you're putting together academic collaborations on the like purely research side is there difficulty in balancing what is you know something that's trans something that could be translated versus something that is more purely academic or how do you find a balance between you know the entrepreneurship side of tissue engineering regenerative engineering as as opposed to the academic side I mean, our research is a thousand percent academic, right? We, we, mm-hmm. we develop products. We, we don't try to develop products in, in our lab. That's not what we do. We are, in fact, you know, we're still an academic research lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do, it, we, we find interesting problems that may have, you know, potentially, you know, commercial implications, right? In, in terms of uh, product development and, and markets and that sort of thing. But that's not the major goal uh, for what we do. Uh, we know how to do it very well, but but that's not something that we you know set out to do. Is number one, N- number one is to work on, on very interesting problems, problems that need solutions and that uh, that that may be overlooked or being you know uh, try to be approached in a completely different way or the wrong way at times. So sometimes you can step in and and, and do better. Uh, and we try to find you know problems that would impact people. At the end of the day, in in that quest, you inevitably have to do some basic research at some point, or you know traditional you know, fundamental science that you may need to learn uh, as you do that. An example of that is a paper we published in Nature Biomedical Engineering a couple of months ago where we we, we demonstrated how you can use things like micropillars and micropatterning to actually have a real effect in vivo. People have been reporting and, and how you can manipulate cells, phenotypes, and, and maybe differentiation and these sort of things in vitro for, you know, many years, probably a couple of decades now. But uh, no one, you know, sort of that you could do anything useful with that in vivo, right? So we were the first ones to do that. So that's an example of how well, we had to understand the why and, and the potential mechanisms for why that could work. Uh, and, and it happens that it, it plays a huge role in epigenetics. Epigenetics plays a huge role in how this, uh, the, these micropillars and, uh, you know, affecting nuclear shape can, uh, can impact uh, cell function and and as a result of that bone regeneration in vivo. So that's just an example of how, you know, we do whatever we have to do to get to our end goal, which is typically, again, to, to provide better solutions that would help actually doctors, right? The surgeons and then there for help the patient. Definitely. Do you, uh, have you, you know, going back to some of your previous work and research that has been published for many years and then eventually spun out into uh companies from from your work 
Can you give us an example of how, you know, you started from academic research problem to a solution that was eventually uh, commercialized? Yeah, that's a that's a very heavy loaded question that, you know, that probably could take a couple of days to to go into details of how that <laughs> But at the end of the day, you know, we we just pursued what we thought was a better way to make materials. You know, it was a better way to design biomaterials that, that had a particular need at the time, for which there was no good solution. And that was elastomeric biodegradable polymers. And, and you know, you stick with it. We, we had, you know, perseverance and, and dedication and drive, not only from my end, but also from my team. The, the many students and postdocs that put a lot of work and these PhD thesis and, and or master's thesis into that those, those projects is what enabled that that uh, that transfer. But at the end of the day, it's always about having a, a better solution or uh, a, a something that industry can also adopt. Because if you have a solution that's so complicated that only you and your lab can do it, it's not going to be scaled. That's not going to be manufacturable. So that's going to be a huge challenge. So. At the center, we explore those problems, those concepts of what are the barriers to adoption, for example, right, to translation. And um, uh, so to answer your question, it, it's a matter of identifying a, a differentiating uh, a technology that may come out of your research. And it has to be, at the end of the day, superior in terms of benefits that it can provide for that particular application or applications, whatever those might be. You touched on... Um, just briefly, like the team and the students, you know, that are helping, you know, push the projects along, whether for their thesis or for other applications. How uh, how would you encourage like these students as a as a as a mentor? How would you encourage them to you know pursue entrepreneurship just as equally, if not, um, yeah, I guess whatever path they want to choose, whether it's academic or entrepreneurial. Yeah, I mean, I don't encourage them to pursue entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah. I, I encourage my students and my group to do the be- their best. Mm-hmm. It's all I ask of all, all my group members. Just do the best that you can possibly do. Mm-hmm. And nothing below that. And people by, by um, I guess it's self-selection or something, but the people that work in my lab tend to be self-motivated, highly independent uh, people. So uh, I don't really try to, you know, sway people into becoming one, you know, type of uh, of career path, you know, going through a particular career path or another. Um, I just ask that, you know, be interested. This is something that should be interesting to you enough so that you want to give it your best. And and I think that works for the most part. Developing these technologies, when is like the moment you're like, this is a technology that's ready to be uh, translated? Or is there like a, a killer experiment or something that in, you know, the academic research world, you realize like, okay, this is something that could go a little bit further than what we see? Yeah, typically you don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. You need to work with a team of people who have that experience, and that typically comes from industry. Um, now, you might start to get that experience over time as you get older. Uh, but, you know, the average person, you know, working in a lab, uh, I think it would be hard for you to know when something is ready. Now, oftentimes, everybody thinks they're ready to become, you know, entrepreneurs and start companies. And that's one of the fastest way to crash, because if you start something too early and you run out of money, you can't raise enough money. I mean, a million ways how you can fail, right? So it's always good to have that context uh, from outside expertise in that in that area that that's uh, in, in the commercial in the commercial side of things to uh, help you assess whether or not that is the right time and the right move for your for your research. Yeah, no, definitely. In in that process, what do you think is one of the toughest aspects of realizing either finding a team or you know, finding the right uh, advisors for a specific 
uh, translation. Yeah, so, you know, that can be hard. Another hard question that, that gets developed with, over time with experience. But, you know, if you're starting out, you know, working with your uh, technology licensing or technology transfer office of your institution or your company, right? Working with them, they, they should have that experience in-house, you you know, talking to your mentors or people you know who've been successful that might be able to look at your problem or your solutions or your technology and give you that feedback. But, you know, in this day and age with social media and connectivity, I, I, there's a thousand ways on how you can probably seek feedback. Uh, but I mean, you do want the good feedback, but, you know, so I would say start with your technology transfer office at, at, at the university you're at and see if they can help with that, that assessment. Oftentimes they have alumni or or other resources that can help you make a decision of that sort. So we talked a bit about academic funding and finding grants in, in that way, but what are some of the opportunities you have seen for finding funding or support financially to transfer some of your technologies um, from the lab into uh, into the commercial sector? Look, uh, so funding is is uh, is one of those things. It's kind of like with grants as well, right? We can, with, with grants, we have the NIH, you know, the NSF, the Department of Defense. You have agencies that that give you funding, foundations, and so forth. With uh, uh, entrepreneurship or industry, you know, you have typically venture capitalists. People get together, put in their money, and they want a certain amount of return in, uh, into uh, for the investment after you know X number of years. There's also angel investors, you know, smaller smaller funding amounts, but similar idea. They may not have as many uh, uh, requests in terms of uh, ownership, or uh, maybe a bit more flexible for you. But uh, typically, you you start with uh, again. I, I would use the technology transfer licensing office at your institution as a resource to identify who has been the traditional, who have been the traditional funders for ventures at the school. And that would be a good starting point. But a lot of times it's all about network. And I think I mentioned this earlier. It's about networking, getting out there. A lot of cities have uh, organizations or, or programs that are designed for entrepreneurs and startup companies to try to, you know, uh, come in to try to develop uh, the economy. So you should plug into those and go to those events and, you know, introduce yourself and sound very excited about what you're trying to do, have very simple explanations for what you're trying to do. But a lot of it is um, trying to reach out with these, uh, reach out to these contact places. And I think, again, the translational uh, or the technology licensing office or transfer office is a good starting point, followed by your city's uh, local organizations that are trying to do economic development and uh, and there's always one in the biospace, right? Some type of iBio or biotechnology nonprofit uh, group that's that gets people together at different events. Yeah, I, I feel like also it's it's definitely shifted in the cities around the U.S. and probably also worldwide. What cities are really interested in investing in biotech innovation, um, and I think it's spread out from you know the traditional hubs of the past. Yes, uh, I think I mean people see it as an as an opportunity for development, right, and and to bring industry to their their city or their community. So, um, as long as you make the right environment for them, I mean they'll take a look at you. And if you have the right universities for talent development and an IP generation, that sort of thing, uh, should be able to make a compelling case for why they should come to your area. But uh, you, at the same time, you don't have to only rely on your local resources you should definitely look across the country 
because if a good idea if it's a great idea they'll they'll fly in and, and talk to you about it yeah no definitely so going back to uh your work in in the lab what are the aspects of being a faculty that are really exciting to you and what are the most challenging aspects no, I still find you know it's very exciting to you know work with people. I think working with people and developing ideas and helping to troubleshoot uh, you know research is always very exciting. You know that it's never a dull moment. Um, you know we have uh, interesting times whether or not it's trying to apply for grant uh, or, or whether or not it's trying to uh, submit a manuscript or go through revisions or you know there there are many things that in in what we do. As faculty that that are very rewarding and also teaching you know I, I still enjoy you know conveying the importance of of regenerative engineering to the next generation of, of student of grad students or, or postdocs hopefully and uh you know showing that it's it's possible to to do fundamental work and applied research and also impact society as we have you know with the thousands of products that are now on the, on the market that have been sold so uh, I think it's still very exciting to to mostly you know interact with people in, in various ways. Yeah, definitely. I think I also the field has changed so much in the past, I don't know, 15, 20 oh, yeah. years. That's like the reason you... yeah, that's the reason regenerative engineering exists. It did not exist 10 years ago, you know. Uh is there's all these fields that, that that have these insane advances that used to not you could only imagine when I was in graduate school, right? That these things were even possible. So not, that that's correct. It's a lot going on. Yeah. Do you see it's? Do you see changes in you know how regenerative engineering as a field has evolved in a way that has become either more translational, you know, these types of medical innovations going to patients sooner, or do you think it's still kind of like this uphill battle to get something actually approved into the clinic, either for doctors, you know, for the benefit of doctors to be able to do procedures easier, or actually benefiting patients. Uh, no, I think these are very exciting times. Uh, there, there are companies out there like Dimensions Inks and the other ones, you know, that, that Dimension is doing 3D printed by medical devices using really cool biomaterials. So this is the beginning. I mean, I think it's just going to get better. Uh, so so it's not easy to get uh, new things through the Food and Drug Administration. That is true. But now we, I think we're starting to see more and more success stories. Uh, Ali Karim Hussaini with his material for... Um, for, for aneurysms and how to you know help prevent those or seal those and so I I think that there's going to be a, a completely a, a new era for bioactive materials or regenerative biomaterials uh, that's that's very exciting I think for students or grad students who want to get into the field because the days of using you know polylactic acid or polycaprolactone or you know, the, the more common polyesters that we had to use for years because that what we had that's what we had available as a, as, a, as a biodegradable in form of a biodegradable medical device. Uh, those days should be coming to an end, I hope. And uh, we hope to publish a review article that touches on that, so it would give, give people some more guidance and some some insight, at least in my perspective, as to how that that really is going to change. No, I I think I mean things have shifted so much, but. Um, I guess also in your own lab, you probably see shifts in what either what you're excited about or what your students are excited about, what you know, new ideas people bring. Um, would you would you say that like what is one of the toughest aspects of being a PI? Yeah, one of the 
difficult things that you can run into is how to manage people. Like I said, one of the rewarding parts is interacting with people, but one of the challenging aspects is also interacting with people. There are you know, a lot of dynamics among different personalities or, or different situations that might might arise, and, and you have to manage those, uh, hopefully in a, in a good way that, that things uh, resolve, but that can be that can be very tricky. Uh, also, you have to raise your own money, right? This job is yeah. sort of like a business where you know nobody gives me anything to to do the work that I have in my, in my head, right? I, I got to convince people that these ideas are valid and that they're worth pursuing and that they're worth millions and millions of dollars. So that that can be a bit daunting, but you know it's it's just part of work. And what's your like your day to day routine for an academic perspective? like a PI that has all these responsibilities, uh, but also some, you know, some involvement in companies and being an advisor to some of these companies, how does that uh, shape your day-to-day life? And um, has that evolved over your career? I mean, every day is different. There's no way to say, you know, how how my day-to-day life goes because everything is different. You have different deadlines, different projects. You know, we have at least, you know, seven eight projects that are very different that go on at any given time. So you have to constantly switch attention to different topics. Um, you know, and you still have to, you know, service to the profession. I still have to, you know, review papers. I, I'm, I'm the deputy editor for Science Advances, so I still have to decide on papers and who gets in and who gets out. So, you know, there's no regular day for me, unfortunately. I, I got to set aside time to do all these different things in, in addition to your own life and your own personal life. So um, it's just, let's put it this way, it's very... Is is very active, very very. There's not, not too many dull moments there. Do you have a way to you know ensure that you have a good work life balance outside of you know outside of academic? Yeah, I don't uh, work outside of it. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like you know setting a a day or a time that you don't work is is the best way to do it. Yeah. As we're closing out, what do you? I mean, you touched on this before, but what is the thing you're most excited about in the field of biomedical engineering? What is like the innovation that's, you know, it may be not necessarily something that you're working on, but some area that you find super fascinating right now? Look, right now, I think, again, this is part of, or was this within the purview of regenerative engineering, the ability to sense and monitor, you know, your these implants and, and report that information back to the patient, to the, the caregiver, you know, the company itself or insurance. I think that is going to be huge. So, you know, right now, this idea of smart regenerative systems, uh, I think is going to explode. It's going to continue to grow. Something that we're active in, collaborations with people from the bioelectronics field. And uh, and I think that combination is going to be a powerful one. It's going to change how we how we practice medicine, specifically surgeries that, that require, uh, you know, tissue function restoration, you know, through, um, uh, you know, implanting or, or replacing tissue parts or organ parts. So I think that's going to be, a major uh, emphasis in the future, this idea of smart regenerative systems. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's super exciting. And you, you've published a bit, a bit on this and uh, I feel like the field is just exploding now. So yeah, I wanted to give an opportunity if you have any shameless plugs or things you wanted to uh, bring up. I think I, I had enough, a few shameless plugs already. Yeah. Attention. No, no. Yeah. I, like I said, I think that this is a very exciting. These are very exciting times in terms of biomaterial science and, and, and engineering. It's super exciting for regenerative engineering or tissue engineering, whatever type of engineering you do that has to do with restoring uh, tissue or organ function. I think that uh, 
If you're in graduate school trying to you know pursue a postdoc, there's a lot of very interesting faculty out there. A lot of the younger faculty are doing fantastic work as well as so lots of choices, uh, a lot of options out there. And in terms of uh, translational research, again, the door is open for uh, new types of products that will you know help solve some of these pressing needs and with, with with medical problems. And it doesn't have to be always the common ones, right? It doesn't have to be heart disease or or cancer. You know, the, the typical ones. The other other problems that we have that deserve solutions from engineers that you know you can turn attention to, and as long as you justify how that's going to make a difference in people's lives, uh, you should definitely pursue it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time and also uh, speaking about your career and uh, translational efforts from your group. Um, so thank sure. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Enjoy the rest of your day. This podcast is funded by support from the National Institute of Biomedical Imaging and Bioengineering at the NIH grant number P41EB027062, given in partnership to Columbia and Tufts Universities. For more information on the Tissue Engineering Resource Center, check out our website at nextgenturk.com, that is N-E-X-T-G-E-N-T-E-R-C.com.